Hey, 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 film fans, how goes it? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It is the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined, as always, by the philosophizer of film, Mike Nichols, deep in the heart of Texas. What is up, my boy? Uh, the temperature. Yeah, we broke uh, we broke some heat records here in Austin, Texas. So there's some extreme weather we're surviving. Uh, speaking of extreme extreme weather, how are you you guys doing in Grand Rapids? Like, I heard there was like a tornado. I had friends like telling me they had like you know trees down everywhere, trees going through like garages, uh, no power for three days, no water. Like, are you guys doing okay? How are you doing? I got to stop sending, asking you what is up, because every single time I send you down a, a temperature tangent and we talk, start talking about weather, it's just such an easy I mean, thing to go to off the top. We did, but... Yeah, but we literally just broke a heat record here again. Like, it's been crazy like and, and horrifying yeah, and hot. Yeah. But yeah, how good. are you? I would, we're good. I mean, we're, good. Tornadoes? we're good. The storm was a little bit north of us. Uh, you know, some down trees, a little crazy when it came in. Tornado sirens were going off, but... Uh, I mean, yeah, it was pretty intense. Had some deaths here in Michigan, mostly people who were on the road and kind of got caught in it. But, uh, yeah, some damage up in northern Kent County, if you know Grand Rapids. But, uh, you know, no worse for the wear, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. But, yeah, sometimes we do get those crazy, uh, crazy storms that go through. But uh, we're not here to talk weather, Mike. We're here to talk movies. And it is the heart of summer, as you just mentioned. Heat, uh, I'm sure, scorching down there. But, uh Summer means movies. It means blockbusters. It means big time movies, especially lately. We're finally going to do it, Mike. We're a little late to the party per usual. We don't exactly uh, thrive on timeliness around here, but we're finally going to attack the Barbenheimer phenomenon tonight, uh, which has, mm. you know, t- I love it. You know, I'm going to try not to have my hipster hat on tonight because I've seen a lot of people, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know that are going to the theaters to check out Barbie and Oppenheimer. And, you know, they're going to the theater to check it out, but it, it's a little bit trendy and they're doing it, I feel like, just because it's trendy. But you know what, Mike? We've been preaching for four years on this podcast, go to the movie theater. And now that people are going to the movie theater, I'm not going to get on my high horse and give them crap for it. I don't know about you. I mean, I, I don't know what your hipster hat looks like. Maybe maybe you mean hipster beanie or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I just mean, you know, giving people a hard time for going to the theater just because it's the trendy thing to do is all I'm saying. Yeah. Right yeah. Well, this is great. I mean, I think it's good for movies. I think it's good for these two movies in particular. It's fun. I mean, the marketing uh, event that was Barbenheimer was kind of genius. And I think it does work for these two movies. It, I definitely have seen... Uh, articles about like what other two movies were released the same day that could have had their Bob Barbenheimer had like you know the marketing teams like thought about it more but I mean both of these are amazing movies I do think they're easily the best movies I've seen this year and, and you know the casts of both films and the crew like they've both been up for it like I've seen them both like posting pictures like oh yeah we're gonna go see each other's movies like we're like they're, they're gonna be good movies and, and they both were so win-win i barbenheimer rocked and uh i'm happy it happened i think it was good for good for movies good for these these movies in particular and uh fun for audiences i'm i'm glad i'm glad this happened more to come on that a bomb (laughs) wow uh more to come on that later for sure we'll talk about both of those movies in depth not sure they're both at the top of my uh list but uh we'll get into that a little bit a little bit later you like these movies Oh, I'm not saying I didn't like them, Mike. Just we got to save it for a little bit here. You know, we got to save wow. it. But, uh, I okay. I'm not saying I didn't like them. I'm not saying I didn't like them. Just hold on. 
We'll get there. Uh, we'll get okay. there. Okay. We've got stuff to cover first. We've got stuff to cover first, uh, sure. including uh, you just finished Barry. We're not going to review Barry, but I put it in my top 10 films uh, or top 10 TV shows of the decade. Uh, yeah. Or, or all time, actually, we did, didn't we? Uh, yeah, you said all time. Ago. And, uh, you know, I, I don't you finished it. I, I encouraged you to watch it. I thought it would be a show that you would very much enjoy. Uh, does it come anywhere near your top 10 or is it maybe an honorable mention? I know you like, um, it. don't give us a full review, but uh, I'm yeah. glad you finished it. I don't, I don't know if Barry comes in my top 10 of all time, but for the decade, probably. Uh, yeah. I thought it was a great show, very original and fun premise that then, got very very intense and dark and i thought in appropriate ways like the tone of the show fit the plot of the story um you know they didn't try to force humor because it starts out as a very funny show but they didn't try to force humor as the show went along like they just let the story kind of take control of what you were watching and and there still were very funny moments but there was a lot of really heavy drama incredible acting by everyone in that in that cast and um just really really well written i think if you have to come back to anything like that was a well-written show like characters make choices there's consequences they then have to like try to figure out around this and like they're getting backed into more and more corners um it definitely had like that breaking bad feel of like you're watching someone who like maybe starts out well-meaning but then just the consequences of their criminal choices just keep getting more and more intense until it just builds up and this devastating way. Um, I thought it was a great show. I was very impressed by it. And I definitely think it will go down as a very um, like behind the scenes honest show too. Like some of the things it covers about Hollywood or about behind the scenes of acting or, um, you know, very authentic in that sense. So mm-hmm. well done to everyone. And uh, yeah, that was a great show. Well done, Barry. Yeah, you can hear more of my thoughts on that uh, top 10 shows of the decade. You know, I, I appreciate its sort of examination of the normalization of violence and kind of how we accept it in our society. And uh, yeah. I would like to see Bill Hader do more. I'm excited to see what he does more behind the camera because this truly was an original show that uh, I truly enjoyed. So uh, that's Barry. I'm glad you got to check it out. But uh, here for the first couple segments before we get to Barbenheimer, we're going to split one of them up. Mike and I both saw movies that the other one didn't see, and then we'll get into Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, then Barbenheimer. But I went and saw the new Mission Impossible, uh, directed by Christopher McQuarrie. It is the seventh installment in the Mission Impossible series. It stars Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. Uh, there's an ensemble cast along it. In the film, Hunt and the IMF team must face off against the entity, the powerful rogue AI, and fight to prevent it from falling into the wrong hands. AI, very timely, Mike. That's obviously a conversation that's going on all over the place. It's at the center of the writer and actor strike going on right now. Um, Big part of the controversy, so I think it makes sense to make a villain in this. I'm not going to go into a full review of this because, honestly, if you want to hear my thoughts on this, you can probably listen to Mission Impossible Fallout, which came out in 2018. But, Mike, much like that film and, and most of the newer films in this series... Mission Impossible is just like the quintessential awesome blockbuster action film. I mean, say what you want about Tom Cruise, but this guy is a fantastic action star. I mean, he he does some amazing things. He is pretty much the top working stuntman in the business right now. In this film, he rides a motorcycle off a mountain. He did it 20 times. 20 times! And then he lets mm. go of a parachute. Uh, it's just 
exceptional stunt work. Uh, there's a chase through Rome that is incredible. Uh, the final scene when he went up the mountain is kind of like this train chase through the Alps. So we reviewed Indiana Jones last time, Mike. We've got two different train scenes in big blockbusters this year, and both of them are pretty awesome. They actually both have, you know, the, the scene where you go through a tunnel and they both have to like lay down and there's a fight going on through the tunnel. But yeah, just a fantastic action film. You know, if I had some criticisms, it's much like all the other Mission Impossible criticisms. You know, the plot is driven is essentially driven by a MacGuffin. There's a lot of scenes that are just straight up plot dumps. But I think that's okay because nobody's going to watch a Mission Impossible movie for the character development or the writing. It's about the action. And this movie succeeds on every level in being a fantastic popcorn flick that you should see in the theaters. You know, when you leave there, you go, me and my dad, I went and went and saw it with my dad. We're like, that's an action movie. And I really yeah. applaud uh, Christopher McQuarrie and uh, who's really taken the reins of this along with Tom Cruise for uh, really taking the Mission Impossible series that could have died out and been sort of played out and lame and really re-energizing it with every single one of these movies. So um, I've really enjoyed pretty much every single one of them from three on. And for that reason, I would definitely recommend Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. I believe I gave it a... 8 out of 10. So uh, go check it out in theaters if possible. I've seen two of them the whole way through. I've seen one oh. and I've seen two. And then I oh, saw... you left right when they got good. And then I saw most of three. But I've never... But yeah, after that, I've never seen it. I've, I've YouTubed the best, like, like, oh, you know, the scene where he climbs the, the building or, you know, the, the scene where, you know, he holds onto a plane while it takes off. I've YouTubed the action sequences, but that's it. I've never actually seen these movies so mike did not see mission <laughs> impossible but you did see no. something else so uh i did ahead. yeah i saw a mission that wasn't impossible but a mission that was pure uh fantastical and and completed a last wish of a certain fantasy character by the name of puss in boots that's right people i want to talk about puss in boots the last wish and why it's actually one of the best movies of the year and maybe one of the best animated films of the decade. Wow. Uh, this was a fantastic movie. Um, now, to be fair, I had never seen the... I've seen the Shrek movies, but I have not seen the individual Puss in Boots movies or like TV show or whatever. So I went into this one just because everyone was like, dude, the Puss in Boots Last Wish movie is actually one of the best movies of the year. And I agree with that sentence. Uh, it was great. Um this follows Puss, uh, uh, played by Antonio Banderas, as you know, and he is on a quest to not die and to find this last wish. Um, this is really, really beautifully done. It has the same, like, I would say style of animation that you might see in something like uh, Spider-Verse or Arcane. It, it feels like it's like half CGI, half half traditional. Um animation but yeah it's just it's so it's so good it, it's like okay here's characters here's their character arcs here's what they're interested in here's like your traditional like you know like story but it's all just done so well it's crafted so beautifully and the humor is so sharp but then the, the emotional moments hit really hard too um it's just good uh uh and it really just deals not just with 
like a character kind of confronting his own legacy, but also the the end of his legacy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to face death, but it's like, how do you choose to face it? And that's kind of what this explores for someone like Puss in Boots, whose whole life is about adventure and the, like, you know, the next the next adventure and and the one after that and the epicness of his own legacy. But you know, if you break down that a little bit more by just throwing death at it suddenly you have to find something maybe a little deeper to fight for. And uh, yeah, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I will absolutely put it on one of my favorite movies of, of, of well, I guess it came out 2022. Um, but uh, yeah, this is easily one of the best movies I've seen in a while. Interesting. I give it an A. That's interesting. I mean, I, I did not see, like you, I did not see the Puss in Boots spinoff. I've obviously seen all the Shrek movies. He was one of the characters that I actually, like, enjoyed that they added. You know, I think mm-hmm. the Shrek franchise kind of got played out a little bit uh, towards the end. Like, they sort of, the universe got too big for its own good. There was too many characters. You couldn't service, yeah. you know, all the people. But Puss in Boots was one of the good additions, I felt. And to see him sort of get his own movie and, and to sort of deal with that sort of mat- surprisingly mature subject matter, it sounds like. Uh, that yeah. that that kind of makes me want to watch it, you know, just to think about. I can kind of... Uh, I, I kind of understand what you're putting down there. Uh, and then this movie has an amazing voice cast. Holy cow. Antonio oh, yeah. Harris, Selma Selma Hayek, Hayek, Harvey Gantz, Florence Pugh, Pugh Olivia Coleman, Coleman, Ray Winstone. Yeah, John Mulaney. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, it's great. It's a great cast. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll have to check that out. It's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. So uh, not full reviews there, but Mike and I had both just seen movies that uh, neither of us had seen, and we wanted to quickly jump on them there uh, just to acknowledge them because they were pretty big releases that came out. Uh, the last, uh, I guess, three movies, uh, Mike's seen half of this next one we're going to talk about. I watched it uh, just last night. It's Wes Anderson's latest comedy drama. It's called Asteroid City. <sighs> Mike, we might need a, pull, a, a full podcast to uh, name off the ensemble cast, but it includes, ready? Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, Lee Schreiber, Hope Davis, Steve Park. Friend, Maya Hawk, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tom Revolori, Jake Ryan, and Jeff Goldblum. Its metatextual spot plot simultaneously depicts the events of a junior stargazer convention in a retro-futuristic version of 1955, stages a play while also depicting the creation of the play. It is directed by the great Wes Anderson, who might be great if you ask some people and might be weird if you ask others. We're both film dorks, so I assume we both like Wes Anderson. I like a lot of his movies. But, Mike, is there a more singular auteur working in mainstream Hollywood today than Wes Anderson? Because when you flip on a Wes Anderson movie, it's pretty obvious that it's a Wes Anderson movie. And I'm not sure that any movie that he's made recently screams Wes Anderson more than Asteroid City. Yeah, I mean, this was... I, okay, so I will confess. Uh, I put this movie on. I was excited to watch it. I wanted to see it. Um, I do enjoy Wes Anderson. Uh, and then it was just a long weekend. It was late I, It was late night, and I fell asleep during the film. So I did not officially finish this movie. Not because it wasn't good, but because I, <laughs> because I am weak. I was tired. I was exhausted. It was one of those moments where you put on a movie and all of a sudden you're going to fall asleep. So unfortunately, I didn't finish this movie. So I can only talk about what I saw. Um, and what I saw was some of the most incredible cinematic um, photography work I've ever seen in a film. Like 
the way that it was shot, like everything feels in focus. Every color is sharp. Every single frame feels like a postcard or a painting um, or even like at some point it's a Looney Tunes cartoon. You're like they're out in the desert. You see a roadrunner twice go like meep meep and then like walk across like the, the road. But it, it was like it, I, I was just so visually struck by how impressive it was that he made a movie look like this. It'd be just, it looks so good. Um, so yeah, no, I think everyone knows when you say Wes Anderson, everyone knows what it's going to look like. And that's, that's fine. That's what he wants to do with his movies. That's what he wants to make. It works. Um, yeah, I mean, it I mean, looks you, incredible. Yeah. If you've seen a Wes Anderson movie, you should know what you're about to expect. It's kind of like offbeat, uh, quirky characters, uh, sort of like deadpan humor. Uh, the camera work will be like very rigid. Like in this one, especially, you noticed like it's very much just like stationary camera that's panning. You know, it'll just turn one direction, then it'll turn another, then it'll go up, then it'll go down. You know, it's and the characters will always be center of frame. But because of his sort of unique style, I think that you can kind of look past that if it's very much his style, you know, it's very much, that's what you're getting. And this, this film particular is a story within a story. I mean, you literally have Brian Cranston comes on the screen from the opening scene and introduces the play that's being written about this, that is becoming a, a show or whatever, a broadcast. And we see the, cre we simultaneously see the creation of the play, uh, playing out against the actual play itself. So it's very much meta in that way where there's multiple storylines going at the same time, but it's just a super fun film where I was watching this Mike, and I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the point of this is. I'm not sure what all these characters have to do with each other. I don't really know what, what's about to happen, but I was like finding myself enjoying it the entire time just because of the yeah. writing. Uh, because of the the performances i mean seeing all these famous people i just ran down the cast i mean that is an absurd cast and you would just you never know who's gonna pop up in any given scene and all of a sudden it's like oh look it's steve carell he runs the hotel or wait is that i thought margot robbie was in this movie oh there's 10 minutes left and there she is on the balcony you know it's like yeah it's it's very much like people coming and going and it's uh a movie that it's hard to kind of pin down to what it's actually going for. I have some thoughts on, on what it's kind of trying to say. Um, and you, I guess you need to tell me what the last scene you saw was, because I don't, uh, that's kind of going to inform my, uh, how I view it through your lens. But uh, I was pretty pleased by the end result of this, even if it's not like what you expect it to be. Um, yeah, I, I do have a question for you about, because again, I didn't get to see the whole film, so it's it's hard for me to I, I can't I can't really give it a fair assessment. But like, um, I'm curious with Wes Anderson. Um, I really enjoy his movies, his um, particular you know style and the look. I mean, you know, you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, there's even a ton of like AI, like oh, what if Wes Anderson did Lord of the Rings, or what if Wes Anderson did Harry Potter, and like everyone's been doing that lately. It's like AI title cards, just, it's quirky yeah. characters, it's weird, but, offbeat dialogue, just for people who don't know. you know. Like so those. I'm wondering how you feel <clears throat> about the Wes Anderson formula for the look and feel of the film, if that ever gets in the way of the story. Like, if you're like, hey, I wrote this really amazing script about, like, you know, this silly little town and these characters who have a love story or whatever... 
And if like in the hands of like a different director, like that could be a really sweet, like charming, awesome movie. But in the hands of Wes Anderson, you're like, oh, well, no one really connected to my characters or the story or the relatability of like what it's like to grow up in that town and experience like, you know, bigotry or prejudice or something because everything just turned into Wes Anderson's quirkiness and these colors and this little, you know what I mean? Like, do you ever feel like Wes Anderson's um, it's a little, it's style a little... gets in the way of, of the actual <clears throat> movie itself sometimes? It can. It's a little self-indulgent. It's a little bit like I'm Wes Anderson and I don't care what anybody says or who this movie's for because it's like you basically have to be a fan of Wes Anderson to enjoy this movie. Otherwise, you're just going to be turned off. You're like my dad watched this movie, you know, casual film guy, loves blockbusters. He watched this. He goes, you know, I kind of liked it, but it was really weird, you know, and it's like if you don't know what Mm -hmm. you're getting into when you go into this movie it's probably going to be a little bit off putting to you. And I, I do think some of the stakes, you know, these characters, you know uh, it's basically his homage to, you know, the 1950s UFO Southwestern desert towns that are around atomic war test sites, which, you know, kind of ties into to Oppenheimer obviously, but it's, it's very much a part of Americana and a part of America's history that is um, I think ripe for storytelling. And I don't know if this film really dives into the the plethora of themes and things that you could go into there but i don't think it's trying to i think it's just trying to be sort of like a a fun movie that maybe i guess the central idea of this is kind of like dealing with loss i guess because our main Mm -hmm. character is jason schwartzman i guess he lost his wife uh through the conversation with margot robbie uh you know he kind of realizes that he can let go and uh we find out that uh um Edward Norton's character, who was the playwright that kind of wrote the thing, died in a car crash. So, like, not only did his wife in the script of the play die, but also Mm -hmm. his lover off in real life died. So it's kind of like him Mm -hmm. being allowed to move on and pursue his relationship with Midge. Sorry, these are spoilers, Mike. You should have watched the whole movie. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, fair. (laughs) But I think that's kind of like he's looking at grief in this film. It's kind of hard to pin down exactly what he's going for, and I don't know if we need to pin it down because – I think it's just an enjoyable enough film that, yes, maybe it could have been dealt with in sort of a different way or they could have took it in a different direction if it was a more, you know, self-serious director like, you know, Martin McDonough or even Christopher Nolan. But I liked the Wes Anderson touch on this. I found the characters to be fun. I found them to be unique. I found the writing to be uh, clever and engaging. Uh, and just the whole scenery, the sort of pastel desert uh play sort of stage like feel of the entire film uh i really liked and i i just can appreciate wes anderson as an auteur making original films writing original films and getting them made so um yeah. i can appreciate that more than anything and i i found this film to be uh, quite enjoyable i liked it better than some of his other films um and i'll give it an eight out of ten all right mike are you ready to tackle barbenheimer let's Let's get into Barbenheimer. What an exciting, exciting time for movies. I mean, just the most random combination of films, that's for sure. But uh, we'll get into Barbie first here. It is a American fantasy comedy film. It's directed by the great Greta Gerwig, who I know that we Mm -hmm. are big fans of on this podcast. Uh, But it stars Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling as Barbie and Ken as they go on a journey of self-discovery following an existential crisis. 
It features a supporting cast that also includes America Ferreira, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, Rhea Perlman, and Will Ferrell. Mike, we we know Barbies, even though we're guys. Uh, we know Barbies. You know, Barbie has been a fixture in, in Americana for forever. Uh, you know, it's like the quintessential female uh, girl's toy that you get when you grow up, which I guess is addressed in the film. But uh, <clears throat> this had a lot of hype coming in. We're big fans of Greta Gerwig's previous work in films like Lady Bird and Little Women. Um, so I know when we heard that she was going to be tackling Barbie, I think we both assumed that this film was going to take a more nuanced approach, a different approach. It wasn't just going to give us a straight, regular Barbie film like, oh, I don't know. Do you remember that Disney Channel original movie Life Size with Tyra Banks and Lindsay Lohan? Uh, uh, it I, did, I didn't see it, but yes, I do. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. So in worse hands, in less talented hands, I think this Barbie movie could have ended up basically like that. Instead, we get something that is, I don't know, a reflection on gender roles, a, a reflection on feminism, a reflection on masculinity, a reflection on commercialization. There's a whole lot packed into this movie about a doll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I think it's exactly what you said. Like In lesser hands, this becomes something not as interesting, not as fun, not as, not as quality. Not as memorable, but yet when you give it to artists who actually care and people who are familiar with the content, like, you know, like, I don't know, let a woman make a movie about being a woman. What do you know? It's actually good. Uh, I think it's frustrating to hear that, like, a lot of the studios have been like, okay, Barbie was a success. And why? Because we should be making more movies about toys and using that, like, we should be like mining that like you know for content and it's like no that's not why this movie's good that's not why we all liked it that's not why it's grossed a billion dollars now it's it's because you allowed good creatives to tell a meaningful story about their human experience through the lens of this universally experienced thing barbie like this is like what all tent poles are supposed to be about in some ways. Um, and I, I would hope that they would take away the right lessons from it. Uh, not just about the messages, the movie, like, yeah, people want to see more women in lead roles like that are meaningful. And people want to talk about the female experience, not in a way that's cheesy or fake or, you know, falsely hyped. They want to talk about it in a real way about what it actually feels like, like the flaws, the, the humanity, the strengths, the, the 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 sometimes impossible like things that make it feel insufferable. Like, you know, I love that speech that America Ferrer gave, like where she was talking about all the impossible ways oh, that man. women have to be women. And I was like, you know, even as a guy, I'm like, I feel this. Like, I feel that this way scene sometimes. might get her nominated. Just I that scene so. alone. <laughs> it was great. And then and then the way that ended with was she was like, and if we put all this pressure on just the doll. And it was this great little moment of like, yeah, like so much sometimes of fandom and like, you know, the, the stuff we when we talk about art, it's like, it's just it's just a movie. Like, it's just the art of it. It's not the real thing. It's not a real person. Like the amount of pressure we do sometimes put on movies to be perfect or to speak my truth. And it's just, like, I don't know. Like, I think like I think we try to do a fair job on the podcast, but I do feel like a lot of the Internet 
in how it judges films and judges art. Like it is just ridiculous sometimes. It is impossible to please everyone and it is merciless about, oh, I didn't like this thing. Therefore, I think the artist's whole opinion on this one topic must be evil or must be, you know, such bad faith reading. So, man, this movie was good. This movie was so, so good. Thank you, Greta Gerwig. Amazing. <clears throat> and Noah, and Noah ba- Bombach, who did part of it. I don't know how much he did, but Greta Gerwig directed he it. Helped so, write it. So um, cheers to Greta. Cheers to Greta. <clears throat> I think the the self awareness of this film helps it. I mean, right away yeah. you, you jump into it, you're it's very much it's a Barbie world that the creators of Mattel, Mattel like literally is making fun of themselves in their own movie where they they acknowledge that there's like this fantasy Barbie world and it's somehow related to the the people who think up Barbie and that also relates to what products end up on the shelves. So that's where you get all the sort of materialistic commercialism through the character of Will Ferrell. But the movie is very like self-aware. It's it's so confident in its ridiculousness that it's yeah, like, exactly. You know, you're, yeah, you're it understands the assignment. Yeah, perfectly. it understood the assignment. You're literally in like a Barbie world where you know Margot Robbie plays stereotypical Barbie, um, which I think was a funny way to go about it. You have Kate McKinnon, who's like the Barbies that get played with too much, who are like ripped in all the directions, so they call her weird Barbie, and then that comes around and they realize that it's not nice to call her weird Barbie because she's just uniquely her. And so you get into all that, all that kind of stuff. But I think starting with sort of like a meta approach, uh, sort of realizing that Barbie is obviously something that's very ingrained in society. And so to approach it on a level like Mattel knows that they've sort of tried to manipulate the industry and manipulate the world for forever to just kind of call that out led to a lot of great comedy, particularly when Will fit Will. Will Ferrell's like leading his mob of suits riding the bikes <laughs> into the world. Like it was just so funny. So that sort of humor set up a lot of it. But I think what kind of really sets this movie apart is because I'm not going to lie, Mike, I-, I went into this. I ran into a friend at the theater. She was like, are you here by yourself? I'm like watching Barbie. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I got a podcast to do, you know, and she's like, so you're watching Barbie by yourself. And we talked after she's like, I'd love to get your opinion on this from a guy's perspective, because like, I didn't, I wasn't ready to offer my thoughts then because I needed to collect them. But I was like, yeah, there's part of me that went into this being like, is this just going to be like some feminist piece of propaganda that's ripping on men and telling us how terrible we are and how awesome women are. And I think that that idea has turned a lot of people off from even attempting to see this movie. But Mike, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it's it's more nuanced. nuanced. I don't think it's, I don't think that this movie tries to rip on men like specifically it's not some piece of straight feminist propaganda on some levels it's very much like this rare product where you have a woman making a movie but it's about femininity and it's about masculinity you know it acknowledges the 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 sort of struggle that i guess the modern man has where they're trying to sort of balance this you know female feminist uh revolution while also realizing that men have a place too, you know, or masculinity has a place too, but it's sort of that balance. And yeah. sort of this film takes that sort of nuanced approach where it's looking at it from all those angles where it's about, yeah, like, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is it, it it's not just like straight, like woke, what which is what some people would say. It's not just a feminist, right, plot, yeah. you know, it's it, it actually takes, it erases some of those progressive ideals that people just want to like dismiss and it doesn't do that. It actually explores, you know, kind of, um, you know, how female empowerment, but also what it means to to sort of like, it sort of reimagines feminism, you know, to so that it doesn't ignore 
um, the male struggle. I don't know if I'm saying this the right way, but no, you know no, I, I, I honestly, I think you're actually saying it really well. Cause I've seen some of those critiques too. And I've actually seen guys who didn't want to go see the movie because like I have some guy friends were like, Oh, I'm not going to see that. Like that rips on men. Right. And I'm like, no, like I'm a guy I saw, I didn't feel ripped on. I mean, were there little humorous moments that, that like discuss jokes that like we as men was, do or as funny. women do? But funny. yeah, it does. But it was funny and it does stuff that women do too. It's like, I think if anything, this movie was about, frankly, equality, about showing that at their core, both men and women need the same things. Dignity, respect, space, like like women need space to do things that women are more into and that will value them and feed their interests and men need the space to do those things too. But if the, all the space is dominated by one thing, then you don't really have balance or healthiness because you can't learn from each other. Like that's, that's, that's at least the thing I took away from the film. So no, I think if anything, like the Barbie movie was extremely like, about equality not about dominating over men that was that's that's not at all what i got if, like if and, you're a guy who can't laugh at the whole ryan gosling discovering yeah, what patriarchy is yeah and, he, and he's like it's about horses <laughs> like if you yeah can't exactly laugh at that, <laughs> if you can't laugh at that then quite frankly you're just you're just you're you're on you're uh not comfortable in your own skin as a man yeah because if you're, the, if you're shit was funny dude like if, if you're, you can't laugh at yourself like come on if you're a guy who's watching this movie and is like getting totally offended and feeling attacked ask yourself what is this about this that isn't making me feel safe or me feel valued and then ask yourself how many movies might make someone else feel that way that you enjoy like how many you know, Steven Seagal movies or what, you know, like, I don't know, just maybe get over yourself a little bit and just have some fun with it. Don't take yourself too seriously. I think the the Ken character by Ryan Gosling, like, man, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, props to both of them. They, they steal, they each steal every scene they're in. And when they're in both scenes together, it's like, it's just, it's just gold. They are incredible in this movie. And Ryan Gosling, especially, just crushes he it like, as he can. gets all the best lines dude like he honestly is so like, funny like the movie's called yeah. barbie and it's about barbie obviously and it's about women finding yeah. their and women and margot robbie things. is like iconically perfect in the role like i can't even imagine anyone else doing it honestly like she was so good and stunning and just just excellent on every the, level the like I, when she finds she could out get that... an oscar she she might deserve it even bravo if she does like but Ryan Gosling, like, he gets so many good lines. He's so he funny. Really He's yeah. incredibly funny in this. Yeah. And the scene where Margot Robbie finds out that Barbie, the toy, is not doing the thing that she thought that she was supposed to be doing, which is empower women, when really she yeah. finds out that women are just being made to feel self-conscious because of the way that Barbie's perfect. I mean, these are just, like, great ideas to explore. Yeah, you know, they're how, very creative our, and fun. How our materialistic world and how our, our sort of uh, image of beauty in society is kind of I don't know formed by society itself and sort of warped and you know I'm I, I, sometimes I push back on this stuff and I really thought that I was going to come to this movie and just be like oh my god what is this you know like this you just get off your bandwagon and I really didn't feel that way because I was able to just kind of set that aside and and just enjoy it because it was funny and, and making fun of how men are and making fun of how women are and making fun of how we interact 
Like how is, when is, when is kind of the way that, you know, married couples, you know, jokes about married couples, you know, like, like for example, I went into uh, Rite Aid, this is kind of a tangent, but I went into Rite Aid, I got sent up there for, I went up there to get a band aid, and, and my wife goes, bring some Windex home. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went up there and I bought like two bags of chips. I bought a case of beer. I got my bandaid and you know, I got all the stuff. I went out and checked out. I, I, I check out of the thing and I forget that I, I realized that I forgot the Windex. So I told the cashier, I'll be right back. I got to go back and get the Windex. I come back up there with Windex. It's two ladies back there. And they immediately <laughs> just start laughing. They just start laughing <laughs> because they're like, oh boy, I'm going, it's a good thing you didn't go back without the Windex. You got all this crap and you didn't get the Windex. And why are they laughing? Because that's a gender thing. It's a man-woman relationship. It's a, yeah. it's a, a it's relationship. You know? yeah. It's relatable. Like, oh boy, you're going to be in trouble if you don't come home with the Windex. And that's kind of like what this movie does. You know, it just kind of examines the relationships between guys and girls in a in a sort of fun, lighthearted way where where they're sort of poking fun at both sides, quite honestly. So if anybody's like going into this thinking it's gonna be just like a feminist propaganda men suck thing, yeah, that's in there. But it really is an examination of how the two sides interact in general, I think. Yeah. I would and also I really say oh sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying I really I really enjoyed it more than I thought I did. And uh, I, I was just gonna throw my grade. I gave it a seven and a half out of ten. Okay. Um, yeah. One last one last thing I'll just mention is like I did grow up playing with Barbies. I am the youngest, and I'm the only boy. Uh, and so, why the only way my sisters would kind of let me play with them is like, well, we're playing Barbies. So if you want to play with us, you have to play with Barbies. So I like played with Barbies as a boy, just with my sisters, because I wanted to feel included and accepted. And I think my grandma, it was my grandma or one of my parents, I don't remember, like, but they they eventually got me a because I really liked Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty. So they got me a Prince Philip Sleeping Beauty Barbie Ken doll. And I had that and I was so happy to have that. And I played with that with my sisters. And uh yeah, like Barbie is is an iconic part of people's childhoods. And whether it's like, you know, for women or for men, like it's okay to just enjoy the little things that all make us human. And it's okay to admit like, yeah, like some of the things we enjoyed as kids that maybe we don't think are cool now or or they're silly now or they're like, it's okay to just, you know, enjoy them for what they were and for what they were for you at that time in your life when you needed that to be that thing. Like I needed, there was a point in my life where I really needed a Prince Philip Kendall. And that was that was special to me. And so yeah, get over yourselves. It's a good movie. I give it an A plus. And along those lines, like the movie's called Barbie, but it's really just as much about Ken trying to find his place and all this too. So uh yeah. you know, it, it really can be there. I, I really enjoyed the sort of meta inclusion of uh Ruth Handler who created Barbie in the form of Yeah, it, yeah, it was so sweet. That was just kind of a cool way to go about it, you know, to just kind of like because Barbie has a, and you know, it ends with the whole theme is Barbie has no ending. You know, she she is whatever society needs her to be. And I think that's kind of a shift, obviously, from what, you know, the original intention of Barbie was. But it makes sense because, you know, it's Barbie. Yeah. What she was originally intended to be, you know, what this beautiful, perfect Barbie doll. But now, you know, right. there's so many different types. There's different races. There's different 
forms of Barbie. And, and at the end, she decides to become human, which is probably a sim- symbolic thing of, you know, Barbie was human to a lot of kids growing up, you know. So I, I just appreciated the self-aware uh, sort of meta, not too serious um you know vibe of the whole thing but at its heart there was really some some cool ideas floating around about gender roles about uh stereotypes and masculinity and femininity and how they mesh with each other and uh for that reason i think the film was elevated much more than what it could have been can i just mention one last thing sorry it's important to know the movie's budget was i believe 145 million and the marketing on the for the film was 150 million. They spent more money marketing the film than they did actually making it, which is very interesting to me. And I I, I didn't want to. I don't know if we have time for a whole discussion on it, but I didn't want to not mention that fact because that to me is fascinating. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how films explore the marketing of their of their products after Barbie because I feel well, like it's... Barbie's marketing was like like. It was the stuff of legend what they did to make the to market this movie. Well, it's made so, one point three billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. So uh safe yeah. to say it's made back. But I definitely got some like with maybe it's just because Will Ferrell's in it, but I definitely got some like uh like elf vibes or uh Lego movie even vibes, just the way that it was like because like the Barbie land itself was so like corny looking, you know, like it's just the same way at the beginning of Elf, where it's like you know, it was kind of spoofing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and stuff, but just yeah. like the overall sort of feel of it, uh, I just appreciated. And, and that sort of set the stage for the kind of film we were going to get, which was a lighthearted, not too serious film, but that had a, uh, had some heart to it and had some real things to talk about. So if you're skeptical, if you're a guy of going to see Barbie, if you're worried about going to see Barbie because you're going to not look cool or whatever, uh, just, just maybe put that aside for a little bit, you know, just... You know, I, I'm as jockey man dude as you can get, Mike. You know this. And I <laughs> oh, he really, he really is, people. He's a complete yeah. douchebag. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit it. I am. I'm a, I'm a jock. Like I'm a guy. But like, I loved it. Like I had a good time with it. So just, yeah. just put that aside and go check it out. You know, it's Wait, okay. Do you think? Do you think of me as a jock? No, I do. I, do. I played football all four years of high school. I was all state and track. I've played I know. I just I, I don't really think I'm, of, I don't I'm good really at think sports. Of you as a I'm not saying you're not good at sports. I just I, you kind of come off to me as more of like a. I'm not putting this in the pie, by the way. I don't. You don't. You kind of come off to me as more of like an artsy guy, to be honest. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So. All right. Fine. <laughs> I'm not putting that in the pod. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I never wanted to be. I don't, I don't really know what I am. I'm because I didn't really feel like I fit in with the artsy kids, but I really wasn't a jock either. I was just. I don't know. I, I don't consider you like. I was just weird. Guy. I know you like sports, but I don't. And I'm not. I don't really consider you like sports yeah. guy. Yeah, I, I'm really not. It's that's fair. I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, we 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 need to get to Oppenheimer. We do. I'm gonna have to do some serious editing on this episode, but that's yeah, fine. man. It's worth that's it. Fine. It's worth yeah, it. That was a good discussion. I like that one. Um. All right. The second half of Barbenheimer, Mike. It wouldn't be Barbenheimer without Oppenheimer. Uh, this is a film that I know both of us have been looking forward to for a long time. It is directed <laughs> by the great Christopher Nolan. It's based on the 2005 biography American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. The film chronicles the career of American physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, specifically his studies, his, his direction of the Manhattan Project during World War II, and his eventual fall from grace during his 1954 security hearing. The film stars... 
Killian Murphy as the title character, Emily Blunt as his wife, Matt Damon as the head of the Manhattan Project, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Florence Pugh, and Gene Tatlock. The ensemble a supporting cast includes Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, and Kenneth Branagh. I know. Like Mike, this it's like it's like it's like it's like we have another uh we have another asteroid city, just this crazy cast of famous people all for like even for roles that they're in for like, you know, twenty seconds or five minutes. Like wow. everyone just wants There's, to be in one of these movies. Yeah, some of those people are literally in like one scene, but uh Yeah, it's true. But they're great. Mike, they're great in the one scene they're in. Yeah. I mean, I loved I loved this movie. I went and saw it in IMAX. Of course, we had the 70 millimeter here in Grand Rapids. So I went and checked it out. Actually saw an 11 a.m. screening, Mike. It was packed at 11 a.m. at the movie theater here in Grand Rapids. Right off the top, we get the the writing on it. You know, Prometheus took fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was punished for eternity. I just Mm. love, love the idea of putting that up front with the backdrop of fire, knowing where this is going to go. It's just the perfect entry point into this film, which is a character study. It's a historical film. It's a character drama. It's a warning. It's a lot of things in one, but right off the jump, we're put into that headspace where we're going to be in the headspace of J. Robert Oppenheimer portrayed beautifully by Killian Murphy. Um, and to see, hear him sort of, you know, drop that, that quote, like, you know, and now I've become death, the destroyer of worlds right off the top. I think we realize that this film isn't going to be so much about the A-bomb itself. It's going to be more about the guy who sort of created it and led the project. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this movie, um, it, it is affecting like uh, Barbie was certainly like a movie that was really fun with a powerful message. This was a movie that was, um very uh sobering and terrifying with a with a really really powerful message um i i would kind of compare this film in some ways to schindler's list where you have a an iconic film director who's maybe at the top of his game uh who is um doing a a biopic about world war ii particularly about like the some of the darkest horrors that came out of world war ii and uh is exploring that in a film that's mostly black and white and uh the message of the film is not only haunting and terrifying but it's also like a powerful reminder of the responsibilities that you know future generations now have because of what you know what happened and uh it's long and it's depressing and it's amazing and it's one of the best movies i've ever seen and i never want to watch it again uh that's so yeah like all those things you know are true of schindler's list and all those things are true of oppenheimer um so i mean yeah did you i mean did you come away from this feeling like heavy and like oh, yeah. just afraid or, or just nervous or I don't, I don't know like it was, i mean it's, it, it it's a lot with you. It's there's a no lot. question there's no question that this movie sticks with you for a while i mean it's three yeah. hours long you watch it in imax you're going to be engaged with it so it's like you're kind of oh, yeah. in this time capsule for three hours it, and, and it doesn't feel like it's three hours like when it no, like no, no. i thought it was going to feel way longer than it did and i was like oh i i we're already like two hours in wow like it goes quickly because it's just so intense and engaging 
Yeah, I mean, but it, it really is about everything except the actual dropping of the A-bomb. You know, it's really about uh, the mm. lead-up. It's about the creation. It's about the consequences. It's about um, the impact on people. It's the impact on nations, you know, because we never actually even see the actual A-bomb get dropped. I was not mad no. about that. I was not mad no, about that. Yeah. I did not need to see that. Um, well, that but, he like, said, I, I watched an interview with him and Nolan said that he wanted the audience to experience it the way that Oppenheimer experienced it, which was to hear about it on the radio and then to see the images afterward, uh, which they show. They, they, and they don't even show the images because, I mean, we know we can Google it, but they wanted to show their like the faces change. Like they wanted to show the people who made this bomb, then the, then watch their faces as they actually see what the bomb did. Yeah, and, uh, and the film is, is powerful, not about powerful choice. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we can get in. I don't. I'm not really interested in getting to the debate about whether or not we should have dropped the bomb. You can, you can make real arguments on both sides of that, and it's 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 not. It happened a long time ago, but I'm more interested in talking about the character of Oppenheimer because I think that the film really focuses on that. You know, it's about his upbringing. It's you know, we see him so many close ups on on Killian Murphy's face and whether or not you know he's doing the right thing and you can tell that he's it's really weighing with him. Like before we recorded, I watched a, a video of him reciting that quote, uh, which is from the Hindu Bhagavad uh, Gita uh, yeah. about a, a prince who's talking to the God Vishnu and Vishnu's trying to convince the prince to do something. And he extends his, all his arms and he, he says the thing, you know, and now I've become death. I'm the destroyer of worlds. And we hear that over and over. And it's really about Oppenheimer sort of like, internal struggle of serving his country uh using his his amazing abilities to create this terrible weapon to i guess end you know the most terrible conflict the world has ever seen but he also has this in even though he feels like he's doing the right thing he knows that he's going to kill thousands of people with his brain you know and and so the yeah. film really focuses on that the way that uh christopher nolan creates drama through you know whether it's like stars exploding or just like the music or the particles going against each other you know when they actually do the trinity test which was all real by the way they actually set off an explosion which just blows my mind uh with just the close-ups to the fire and man it's haunting mike i mean just watching it and just thinking about you know nagasaki yeah. and hiroshima and what the people down there you know, must have experienced and what the, just the sheer fire and the fireballs. I mean, it's, 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 it's terrible to think about. And I, yeah. you know, I'm not trying to like get into, like I said, I'm not trying to get into the debate of whether or not we should have done this. It's, it happened. It's history. It's there. Um, but, but the way that the film sort of makes us sort of think about that stuff is very powerful. Yeah. And it also, it shows it through the lens of the people who did do this. And did wrestle with it. Like, I mean, you know, it's easy for us to sit back in like Monday morning quarterback World War II. Um, but when you're living through it and experiencing it, it's a different feeling. And also when you're responsible for it, it's a different feeling. And and it does explore the real the real sentiments that the people who lived through it had of like, hey, like, like, you know, yeah, we wanted to beat Hitler to the bomb, but did we also want to be used that way? Like, you know, there, there are real, real tough ethical issues that come out of the fact that we are creating a scientific power that can now end the world. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that is kind of what the film explores is the idea of, Hey, 
you know, you think about everyone who else who's ever lived, Alexander the Great, Nero, you know, Julius Caesar, um, you know, Hitler, even like, you know, everyone who's ever tried to take over the world or like, you know, committed outrageous atrocities. It's like, but none of them could have ended the world until this. Like now the power to end the world is an existential threat that is very real and it is out there. Like it yeah. really is the moment where it's like, okay, history has now gone into the next chapter of human conquest of human terrors and dangers. And like, this guy is the one who started it for us. Yeah. And that's really what they set up throughout the movie. You know, it's, it's sort of an examination of, I guess the, the power that humanity has, which is both great and horrifying, you know, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, the final is. scene is, the final scene is, you know, I guess a largely fictional conversation between J. and J. Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, where they're talking about, you know, how they may have just set off a chain reaction that could end the world. And Nolan yeah. obviously ties that to our current situation where, you know, us and Russia and North Korea and China, you know, all these nations yeah. have nukes. And if one loose cannon, you know, pushes the button in the wrong time, then the world is probably over. And that all started really here with the A-bomb. And so I think that yeah. tying it back to the timely things that we're dealing with in today's world uh, is what part of what makes this film very uh, impactful. But I, I guess, you know, if we try and just narrow it back down into sort of what this movie is trying to do, I haven't felt this moved by the scope of a film since mm. I guess Dune, like Dune kind of did that same thing to me where I'm watching the movie and it's the scope is hitting me, but obviously it's very different because that's a fantasy world and this is a real world. This is actual history. Um, but just the, the absolute scope of this and just kind of like the, the modern parallels that we can draw to it, which Nolan is very much purposefully drawing to. I mean, the final scene is like the earth getting succumbed by fire uh it's very (laughs) haunting this film will stick with you and i just i i just think that this is nolan at the top of his game man i mean like this is this is i think this is my favorite movie of his since inception i think it is i I really like dunkirk but just the impact that i felt watching this movie and you know it gets a little slow i guess at times after the trinity test but like it's a lot of talking in rooms like it, it kind of reminded me of Game of Thrones in a way where it was like it's a lot of talking in rooms and just people talking. But it was still like electric, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah, you know, it, you know, it jumps around a little bit. The plot in time that's signified by the black and white scenes involving Robert Downey Jr. I kind of assumed he was always going to be the bad guy again. It's history. So if you know anything about history, you kind of <laughs> pick that up. But I guess I just appreciated the nuance of this film and the way it examined everything around the actual dropping of the bomb and the way it just made me feel after watching it, because like the scope, the terror, the, the, the great, the, the, honestly, the human ingenuity is inspiring in a weird sort of messed up. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's inspiring you know? in like a... But there's just so uh, many things in this movie that can trigger emotions and, and trigger feelings and, and make you feel a certain type of way. And, uh, I just think I just think Christopher Nolan. I mean, this might be one of his best movies, man. Oh yeah, I definitely think in terms of his best movies, this is this is either number one or at least in the top three. Um, and and you know, as much as we talk about the heaviness of the movie, it is still enjoyable to watch. Like 
you know, there are definitely, and he does a good job of this thing, the Dark Knight trilogy, where I wouldn't say that trilogy is very jokey, but there's definitely funny moments where you laugh or you smile or you're amused by something Alfred or Bruce did. or something. It's just like, oh, that's great. Like, they, this movie has those moments, too, where, you know, I, I think of the night before him and Matt Damon are talking about, like, hey, there's maybe a small chance that, like, you know, when we press the button, it could ignite oxygen. So the whole world like would be engulfed in flames and blow up. And he's like, there's a chance. It's such a small zero chance. would be nice. Zero would be nice. Like, you know, there's still these little moments that are amusing and charming. And uh, like the movie isn't just completely depressing, hopeless, you know, exploration of the A the A bomb being invented. It's there we, there, we see people of, celebrating. Like we see the American, yeah. like everyone going oh, crazy, yeah. like, congrats, you just murdered 200,000 people, but the war's over, you know? Yeah. So like, oh man, and, that was and from so an American well done, sentiment, From an American sentiment, I'm sure that's how people were in 1945. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. You know? and, and that's fine. Like imagine how pe- Americans felt after 9-11, you know? Like, it, yeah. it, you know, like it's, I think it was, the film was very fair in the way I portrayed that, where I was like, yes, this is probably how Americans felt. We ended World War II. At the same time, a lot of innocent people were just killed. You know, it's like because yeah. of the power of science, you know, and I think the film kind of examined that in so many ways in those just the shots of particularly when the Trinity stuff was going on and, and Ludwig Gorenson's score is just booming and they're doing the overhead shots of like the tower and the bomb getting lifted. And oh, man, just seeing this in IMAX, dude, like. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. Like just the power okay. of this film. I will also add to that, which is where I feel like this movie was louder than I've ever heard a film. Like the when I watched this in theater, I I heard it at a normal tone. And then when the bomb actually goes off, it I was like, whoa, like it made it made everyone in the theater jump. It was so loud. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what they did to the, the speakers in that theater or how they did that, but like that it is goes not... silent after that, doesn't it? Isn't it? Isn't there like a boom and then it's silent and then it's all them just watching it, like all the well, close up kind of particles like, and yeah. I feel like I feel like there's both. I feel like there is silence at first and then there's like a boom and then there's silence again. But either way, like that was very, very, very loud compared to yeah. what I normally hear. And anything. silence, silence can be deafening if it's shot yeah. that way. Which and when you're seeing the the exploding particles and the fire and the close-ups of that, I mean, it's you don't need sound to realize what's happening and what these people probably experienced when they saw that for the first time. Yeah. Either way, though, I hope we don't start a trend. Like, I don't want every movie to just be loud now just because it can be loud. Like, well, I don't want purpose, every. Bro. This isn't Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which I saw, by the way. Uh, <laughs> better than most uh, Transformers well, movies. Uh, that's great. Good for you. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, like I will say like there was like there is that moment where it is suddenly louder than I've ever heard a movie theater get loud. Didn't know it could get loud like that. Honestly, maybe that's maybe that's my na- naivete. But uh, yeah, I really hope uh, I really hope other movies don't just start like cranking up the the noise as loud as they can just because it was cool when Oppenheimer did it. Please don't do that. Like it's yeah. What did you think of uh because Robert Downey Jr. kind of has like he's kind of like a co-main character, honestly. 
there's like two different narratives going on throughout the whole film, you know, because you have yeah. like the black and white flashback scenes or like all the hearings and stuff. And Robert Downey Jr. basically carries those scenes. And then you have you know, obviously the main narrative with Oppenheimer and kind of like the biopic side of the film. It really did feel like you had two sort of narratives going at the same time. And you know, yes. my buddy David that I went to the film with said that he was a little bit lost at times when the narrative was happening. And I think they tried to tell us that between the black and white and the color, but uh, it did jump around a little bit, which I found a little bit confusing. Like I said, it's a little slow at times after the Trinity um, blow up, but overall I, I think that it worked pretty well. You know, you almost had two films in one in this though. Um, I think it was a, it was a smart way to tell a bunch of different, um stories simultaneously in a way that felt like a mystery so i'm noticing more films are doing this uh yeah little women did this where it, where it started to tell the main story out of chronological order um and i think that that works with something like this because they they wanted to keep you interested so they're like well how can we make it more interesting let's make it a mystery so it's also history you, too so like yeah. if you know you know you know. Yeah, well, let's make it a mystery where the audience is trying to guess where this is going rather than just showing you then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. They're giving you two different endpoints where you're like, wait, they're here, but then they're also showing us where they're there. So how are we going to get from here to there? And they have you guessing a little bit. So I think that's part of what worked about that for especially a movie that's going to be this long and this fact heavy and this convoluted like with all the scientific detail they need to do something to make it a little bit more than just then this happened then this happened then this happened like mm -hmm. they wanted to make you feel like you you are trying to solve the film mm -hmm. which and again i the think way worked that it, for this and again the way that it sort of like led into you know post-world war ii where like now we're worried about the russians and if there might have been spies and oppenheimer himself is accused of being a spy and feeding secrets to the russians and then now you know, the Cold War kind of leads into where we're at now today, you know, where, you know, relations with Russia are kind of sketchy and they're waging a war against the sovereign nation next to them. And, you know, who knows where we could go? You know, we all have nukes now, which is like the next stage of the A-bomb. So I think that the way the film kind of led into where we're at now, at least maybe thematically or realistically, you know, where we're at now, I think that's kind of why people are relating to this so much, because, not only is it a great examination of Oppenheimer's character and sort of the morality and the, the moral struggle of dropping the A-bomb, but it's very much transitioned into our current status quo, you know, and I think that that's the reason that Oppenheimer has registered with people in addition to being fantastic performances and amazing scope. Cinematography is incredible. The music's incredible. Uh, I'll be shocked if this isn't a front runner for best picture this year, Mike. Uh, I mean, Oppenheimer is absolutely a cinematic achievement and I'm glad both Oppenheimer and Barbie have brought so many people out to the theater who otherwise would not have gone. Yeah, this movie is, uh, like, you know, at the risk of maybe sounding pretentious about it, but like this movie felt important. <laughs> like, this is a like people need to know this story. People need to think about this moment in history and talk about the consequences of nuclear weapons and um and and you know explore how the people who built them felt about them and how it impacted their lives and uh like 
yeah, this is especially with you know where nuclear weapons are today. Like you were saying, it's just like this is this is important. We should take these lessons seriously. We should take them um, humbly. And uh, it's good that we had a master filmmaker decide to explore it to give everyone a chance to kind of rethink about that um, and about you know whatever small little political games we want to play with each other uh are they worth it because <laughs> well I, fortunately i think most yeah, of the powers um... that do have nukes know that the second someone pushes that button we're all screwed so hopefully that remains yeah, but... the case but uh mm-hmm. i think that it's good to have movies like this to kind of remind us of that fact that's for sure so uh i gave it a nine out of ten i guess that goes without saying but uh, oh yeah it's yeah. it's this this was absolutely an a plus um this and barbie were both a pluses to me i thought i think these were these were the two best movies that i saw this year and uh yeah i think either one of them could win best picture they certainly both deserve to be nominated um i think oppenheimer's probably a little bit more like weightier or important in, in the scope of like what it's actually exploring uh the you know the potential oh hey guys we can end the world uh you know um so yeah but uh props i hope christopher nolan finally gets an oscar he's definitely deserved one for a long time absolutely so there we go mike we finally tackled barbenheimer i'm happy with it which movie did you do you have a preference on which movie you liked more oppenheimer i mean but i'm a history guy you know like i'm a history drama guy so of course i'm gonna i'm gonna vibe with that a little bit more so um but i I really enjoyed them both for what they were and i'm glad that both of these films are you know as much as i might hate you know just trends and how everybody's doing things just because it's cool if if it takes something like barbie and oppenheimer to to bring uh people out to the theater who normally wouldn't go to the theater then I'm fine with that, man, because, you know, through the pandemic, you know, we've been doing this podcast since 2018 now, and our entire mission has been go to the theater to watch movies, because this is how filmmakers intended you to see these movies. So if it takes a a trendy cultural phenomenon to get people to do that, I'm fine with it, you know, so, uh, but I'm glad we finally got to these, Mike. I think those were two solid reviews. Um, And I I hope people, if you haven't seen them, you go check them out. But uh, yeah, I mean, both great films, obviously. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We appreciate everyone for listening. Uh, maybe a little bit lengthier of an episode, maybe a little bit uh, wild there off the front. Uh, but hey, you know what? That's how we roll around here. Um, but that's going to do it. So appreciate everyone for listening. For Mike Nichols, I'm Brandon Champion. Thank you once again for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast. We'll talk to you next time and we'll see you.